Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Kenzie. She's 34 and dealing with a ton of different things. For starters, she has lots of digestive issues, gas, bloating, and discomfort, which has been going on for years. She also has a dry and itchy scalp, and her hair has been falling out so much more lately. On top of that, she's tired, has brain fog, and it's hard for her to concentrate. She's so young, but she feels like her memory is really going, and sometimes she can't recall things that seem quite simple, like names of people that she's met before. She has seen a lot of doctors, but like many of the cases I talk about, she has not gotten much help. She tried different medications, had lots of tests, but there is no concrete diagnosis. She went back and forth for three years without much changing till she started to research more and connect the dots and see that while all of these things were different, all of the body systems were so connected that there had to be some kind of a connection there. That's when she found me. And I confirm that these things are very likely connected and suspected she may have a fungal issue, which can mimic so many different things and comes with a ton of symptoms. We just needed to dig a bit further and do some more integrative tests so that we can confirm and figure this out. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Kenzie and the myriad of ailments she was dealing with. And while they all seem like different types of health issues, you will see they're all actually really related. And today's guest is someone that is really near and dear to my heart. You know how people say that everyone starts somewhere? I feel like he's the reason why I'm here. And if you've been following the show, you know that I started like many of you with lots of mysterious health issues and coming up on dead ends with multiple doctors. You know, feeling frustrated, feeling alone, I started to research other ways of figuring things out. And this man, Dr. Biamonte, was my original naturopathic doctor and clinical nutritionist. He's the one that showed me that all of my ailments were related and the reasons why I was experiencing all of these things. And I actually worked with him back in 2003 on cleansing my gut, detoxifying heavy metals, changing my diet, supporting my thyroid and adrenals and rebalancing my body. And then seeing all of these changes in myself is what got me to change careers and be able to do the same for others. And Dr. Biamonte is the person that got 
all of this started. And so Michael Biamonte is a naturopathic physician and the founder of the Biamonte Center for Clinical Nutrition. As a 30-year practitioner, he's dedicated to improving the lives of his patients and helping them get back to living. He is also the author of the Candida Chronicles, a manual for candida yeast infections. Dr. Biamonte, I am so, so excited to have you. Welcome. Well, thank you, Ida. I'm really excited to be here on your show. I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank you so much. So candida or yeast overgrowth is one of your specialties. And from everything you've taught me, it's become one of mine over the years as well. And it's a topic that is much more talked about now than before, but I still think that it's often misunderstood. So can you tell us more about what is candida? Well, candida is an organism. It's a yeast organism, but it's a unique organism. It's, it's something we would call in technical terms dimorphic. The word dimorphic means to be able to live or exist in two different states. So candida can live in your body as a yeast, but also a fungus. And it can switch itself back and forth between being a yeast and being a fungus. Primarily, the majority of the candida in your body is in your intestinal tract or in your mucous membranes, but mostly in the intestinal tract. And it's normal to have some candida there. Candida is part of what we would call your normal flora or fauna in your intestines. The problem with candida is that when it overgrows and it starts to become more dominant than it, than it was meant to be, it starts to produce a whole complex puzzle of symptoms in, in different um, Books and articles I've seen, depending on how you want to you want to count them, anywhere between 100 to 150 different symptoms, candida can cause, and and also in terms of major illnesses, candida can cause um, pneumonia. It can cause arthritis. Um, it can it can go on and on and on in terms of the amount of ailments that it can cause, and it's overlooked because, in part, the medical profession has a bit of a button about candida. And the reason why is because candida mostly occurs with antibiotic abuse, and I'm, I'm going to call it abuse. People who are constantly given antibiotics because the physician is either too lazy or doesn't have the knowledge to find out what else might be causing the person's problem, the, that person is going to have their intestinal bacteria, the good bacteria, wiped out. And in your intestinal tract, there's a balance that occurs. You have good bacteria and you have what we might call bad bacteria. The bad bacteria has a minor role, as I was saying before. The good bacteria keeps that under control. But if you do something to upset the balance of power, if you wipe out too much of the good bacteria by using antibiotics too frequently, then the bad bacteria or the candida then becomes dominant and then it starts to release of uh, many different types of toxins in your system. It suppresses your immune system. Uh, it just goes on and on, and it produces all of these symptoms, which in many cases can be very inconsistent. And this is what really puts people in a spin, because everyone always wants to try to find what's happening with their ailment and be able to try to get a grip on it and understand it. So a person is going to look to see if eating this food causes causes the problem or when he does this, if that causes the problem. And it can be very inconsistent with candida. The only thing you can pretty much be guaranteed is that if you eat a lot of sugar, it will flare the candida up. And other than that, your symptoms or your candida condition can vary based on your diet, based on your hormones, based on the weather outside, based on your environment. There are so many things that can alter it 
that it can literally drive somebody crazy who's trying to figure it out, who doesn't really understand the condition. But the condition is more likely to be found in people who have abused antibiotics. There are other medications that can uh, cause the problem too. Antacids of any kind, whether it's prescription or over-the-counter, if you've abused antacids, that can also cause candida because if you really deplete the stomach acid, it can encourage the growth of candida. Different hormones, estrogen, um, different steroids, prednisone as an example, they can encourage the growth of candida. So I think that's a, that's a pretty good start in terms of um, getting a baseline on what candida is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And I think that, you know, people are starting to understand a little bit more about candida, but I think a lot of people don't realize that it's the toxins that the candida releases, and there's so many of them that is what can actually cause a lot of those symptoms. Now, you mentioned that it can be, you know, anything from A to Z in terms of symptoms. And, you know, in Kenzie's case, she had digestive issues. She also had dry and itchy scalp and hair loss. She had fatigue. She had brain fog. Um, what are some of the other things that you've seen with some of your patients that have had candida? Well, an old-time nutritionist named Kurt Dunsbach who uh, really helped to launch this whole field. At one time, he came up with the four different levels of candida uh, in terms of symptoms, which I think is still valid. The first thing that usually happens to the candida patient is they start having cognitive problems and they have um, loss of mental acuity. They develop digestive problems. Then they go into the next step, which is where they start having skin problems. They start developing allergies of all types. They can develop chemical sensitivities, um, and then depending on where the, their own genetics and where their weaknesses are, they can start developing reproductive problems. Men uh, have sexual performance problems. Women may not be able to conceive, um, and it can go in that manner. The, the higher levels of candida, where you hit level three and four, you start to involve rheumatoid arthritis. Many different connective tissue problems can occur. And generally, what, the unfortunate thing about candida is it stresses out whatever your genetics are. So wherever your genetics are weak, this is, this is what's likely to occur. It, um, if, you, if someone does the 23andMe testing, by, um, as an example, and they see that they have different weaknesses towards certain illnesses, well, if they develop candida, they're likely to have those illnesses that come up on that test actually come about at some point. That's the interesting thing about candida. It stresses out whatever your weak link is. Right. Well, that makes sense because candida is just such a burden on the system. And you know, on the show, we always talk about the overflowing bucket analogy, where if you have so much in your bucket, in your bucket, your body just can't deal with other stuff. And because candida is just such a stressor from so many different angles, the body just can't really do what it needs to do, right? That's a very good point. There's a, one thing I want to mention about candida that sometimes becomes conf uh, confusing. And I've had this conversation with the uh, with with some of my colleagues many times. Candida, as an organism, is one of the closest things to cancer that you can find in terms of how it reacts and behaves. The thing that candida has in common with cancer is it has a, an area of higher metabolic rate. It consumes sugar and carbs. So if you give sugar to a cancer patient, you're going to feed their tumors. You're going to make them worse. And we all know that tumors or cancer actually eats into healthy tissue. Well, candida does the same thing. Candida is an invasive organism which literally eats into your tissues. So the concept of, of, of putting someone through desensitization to candida I think is a failed 
uh, a failed concept. And I, I, I'm very much against doctors who use this as a treatment because you might be desensitizing the immune system to candida, but you're not stopping its growth and the fact that it literally can eat away at healthy tissue. Candida needs to be eliminated from the body when it's in excess. It needs to be brought back down to its normal level, which is as, has a, a subdominant role in the gut flora. So I just wanted to say that for anyone who's listening who's encountered this, desensitization of candida is an okay thing to do to handle the symptoms and while you're handling the whole condition, but never believe that if you just desensitize your immune system to candida that you've won the war because you haven't. I can't agree more. Um, I think what you're saying is so important. And it's almost kind of a similar thing when people sometimes look at food sensitivities, you know, and they'll say, okay, I'll eliminate these foods because they're not going to trigger me anymore. But there's something underneath that. There's something that caused those sensitivities in the first place. So yes, this is so important. An allergic person is allergic. And today he's allergic to the foods they've identified and in three weeks, he can be allergic to a whole different set mm -hmm. because he is allergic. The problem is not the food he's allergic to. The problem is the mechanism in his body that's gone awry that causes him to be an allergic person. When you correct his imbalances and he stops becoming an allergic person, then you've really done something with him. But simply taking him off foods that he's allergic to is just a, a stopgap measure. Agreed. Now, you mentioned that some of the things that predispose us to candida is overuse of antibiotics and steroids and um, NSAIDs and PPIs. So do you find that certain people are more sensitive to these things, meaning that, you know, can someone maybe have one or two rounds of antibiotics and get candida where someone else may have multiple and still be okay? There's two factors there. One is genetic. And in the genetic uh, studies that I've done over the years, there's a key SNP, that, which is called MMP-1. MMP-1 is a collagen error. And it appears that people with this particular SNP have a much greater susceptibility to candida. And other than that genetic aspect, diabetics are the people who next have the highest susceptibility to candida because of their blood sugar always being a challenge. As candida feeds on sugar, diabetics have higher than desirable sugar levels, and unfortunately that feeds the candida in their body and makes the elimination of the candida uh, more difficult. So those are the two air, those are the two people just right off the bat who are going to be more susceptible who are, apparently are minding their own business and not doing anything wrong in that in that sense. Yeah, and how common is candida overgrowth? About one out of three people have candida overgrowth at any time in their life. It's about 30% of the population, and most of them are walking around having no clue. There's, it's only a, probably a small amount of people. Uh, well, probably nowadays it's much more than it was 20 years ago. But um, it's about 30% 30, 30 of the people at any given time will have candida and overgrowth and be symptomatic of it. Yeah, that's Pretty, pretty common. And I also just wanted to mention for everyone listening that the symptoms are so wide, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, for women that you have to have a candida yeast infection. It could be really any of these other symptoms. And I find that a lot of people who have candida never actually even have yeast infections. I mean, some do, of course, but a lot of them don't. So that's not something that has to happen for you to have candida. And as a 
another viewpoint on that same concept. If if one gets a hold of the Merck Manual, the Merck Manual is a common handbook that any physician will have in his office. The, the Merck Manual has stated in earlier editions, I haven't looked at it recently, but earlier editions talk about the woman who has chronic yeast infections and how the problem won't go away unless you treat the yeast overgrowth in the intestines and the colon. Yes, exactly. Now, if someone suspects that they may have candida, what are some of the best ways that they could test for it? Because a lot of the tests aren't very accurate. Tell us more about that. Well, they can observe how they react to beer in particular, because the maltose, which is the principal sugar in beer, is like throwing gasoline on a fire if you if you have candida. But just generally, if the person seems to react poorly to, to sugars and high carbohydrates, there's a very good chance they have candida. And typically, they would have brain fog, a lack of energy, bloating, gas, and all types of digestive complaints in response to the sugars and the carbs. And that right there is a pretty good indication or a pretty good hint that they might have candida. Because when you start looking at all the other symptoms that candida can cause and how erratic that could be, um, it's I, I would I would think this would be a better way for them to do any kind of a self-test um, in terms of their reaction to, to something. Yeah. There's a, on the internet for years, there's been a spit test. <laughs> yes. People ask me about that all the time. And, and really what the spit test is telling you is not if you have candida, it's telling you if you have some kind of a dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is an important word for everyone to understand. It's what dysbiosis essentially means is that you have an imbalance between the friendly organisms in your gut and the bad ones. So dysbiosis encompasses all people with candida, people with SIBO which is the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, people who have parasites, people who have any type of imbalance with the flora in their intestines, they all fall under the heading of dysbiosis. And that's what the spit test is telling you. I was just going to say, for people that are not familiar with the spit test, can you tell everyone a little bit more about what it is and how to do it? Um, well, basically, you take a glass of water and you spit in the glass, and then you look to see what happens with the spit, how it then, um, whether or not it transforms into this thing that looks like it has long legs reaching almost like a, like some kind of a monster coming about as opposed to whether or not the spit just dissipates in the water cleanly if you if a positive reaction on the spit test is you you develop some type of a a, a massive a massy like substance in there that has long legs that start to stretch down to the bottom of the glass and through the water a person who has a negative reaction on the test will spit in the test and there's their spit will just simply dissipate into the water. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. And do you find that that is accurate? It's it's accurate for telling you whether or not you have a dysbiosis, not for candida. Mm -hmm. You could also look at your tongue. If your tongue is heavily coated white or yellow and it has cracks there, which is something that's called geographic tongue because it looks kind of like a map, that's another indication you have some kind of a dysbiosis. And the dysbiosis is easier to identify using these um, these home type of testing uh, techniques than actually finding candida. With candida, you do need to do a test. But as, as you were saying before, testing for candida can be quite troublesome. The typical testing that's done for candida over the years has been a blood test because that's where most medical professionals are oriented. Now, the problem with blood tests for candida is that 
you can find whether or not you have elevated candida antibodies, and normally that will say you, your body's fighting candida. As far as using it in treatment, the problem is, is that once you get rid of candida, it can take as long as nine months for those antibodies to come back to normal. So if you're treating someone for candida and you're trying to monitor their antibody levels in their blood and using that as an indication of whether or not things are working, it's, you're not looking at a real-time test. You're looking at a test that has a, a communication lag of maybe nine months. So there's a problem there. You can get cross-reaction with antibodies. Sometimes people who are allergic to different types of yeast – whether they're pathogenic or not, can sometimes find candida antibodies elevated because of the cross-reaction. Stool tests can be useful if you know how to interpret it. What typically happens with a stool test is a person does the test, they see they don't have candida, and then they, they and their doctor conclude, well, that's not the problem. The deeper problem is that stool is not accurate for candida. It is accurate for getting an idea of your general flora. So if you do a stool test and you find you don't have much friendly bacteria, but you don't have candida either, you can be guaranteed you have candida. The candida is just not showing up in the, in the, in the test. And that's because candida is hard to, to duplicate when you're trying to get it to grow on a Petri dish. Yeah, It's difficult to, to, to get it to grow because it doesn't grow in a uniform manner throughout your intestines. Candida grows in a very splotchy kind of pattern through your intestines where bacteria cover it nicely like it was moss growing up a building. So the key thing in interpreting the testing as far as stool goes, if you, you want to look at your friendly bacteria, your bifidus and your lactobacillus, and if those are deficient, you can assume candida has overgrown whether or not it shows up in the stool test or not. Right. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, candida just doesn't grow that well. So you definitely want to interpret, right? And I have so many people, as I'm sure you probably do too, that come in with stool tests saying, look, look, I don't have it. I don't have it. But, you know, we have to look a lot deeper into it, like you were saying. So what is your kind of go-to tests to identify candida? Do you like using organic acids or what do you like to use? Organic acids would be my second choice. My primary choice is the test I developed myself um, back in the late 90s after suffering with other frustration with, in dealing with stool tests and blood tests and everything. I just became so frustrated with it all that I developed my own test, which is a urine test that looks for metabolites of the candida, different than the organic acid test does. The um, urine test that we have is a self-administered test. We give it to our patients to take home. And they get a first morning urine sample, and then they perform six different tests on their urine. And these tests are able to indicate the amount of, of dysbiosis, of parasite activity, and candida activity they have. And it also has a one, uh, one part of the test will indicate if the uh, person has a lot of free radicals being formed throughout their body that, that's coming from candida. And this test is 95% accurate. What we've done to make it a, almost 100% accurate is we use the test as a challenge. So what that means is we have the person take two test kits home. We have them do the initial test as a baseline, which is accurate enough. It's prob that test is probably already more accurate than most tests they would encounter. But then after they take the baseline test, we have them go on like a colon cleanse which is specifically for candida and parasites and, and bad microorganisms. They do that for about three weeks, and then they do the urine test again. And if their levels didn't show accurately on the first test, 
because they're doing a colon cleanse and they're literally disturbing the nest of where all these organisms are, you will see on the second test a more accurate view of the total amount of these uh, intestinal bugs that they have. So that's that's been our stable and reliable test all these years. And it makes a, a big difference in the treatment because we really can trust what we're looking at. The other thing about it that's unique and interesting is the test reacts when you're having die-off. So when you have the person who can, who can tend to be a little bit confusing and they're having symptoms and you, you're not just off the top of your head able to differentiate in this particular case whether or not this person's having these symptoms due to die-off or whether their candida is getting worse, if they take this test, it will tell you and differentiate. That's great. And for everyone listening, just in case you're not familiar with what die-off means, it's just that when you are cleansing out these infections, they release a lot of the toxins as they die off. And that can sometimes cause us to temporarily not feel as well. And uh, we do wonder sometimes, is it die-off or is it that something else is going on or you're reacting to something else? So that's great to know. Um, I sometimes will run a diarabinitol and kind of follow with that also just to see if it goes up or down to check for that. And that's, that's also perfectly valid. So if someone then does a test and they see that they do, in fact, have candida, what do they do? Where do they go from here? What can we do to start addressing it and addressing it for good? Well, in my method, which, of course, the people can read about by getting my book, my method's kind of unique because I spent many years debugging the, uh, the treatment plan and listening to my patients and getting from them what wasn't working that they were doing with their own practitioners. And I started to list all these things that they would come in and complain about. And then I started researching why that was happening. And that's one of the ways I formed my entire protocol and the, and the axioms that are involved in the protocol. So what we would do after the testing, and we find that they definitely have it, is we put them on a, a plan we call phase one. And in phase one, we select usually four different antifungal substances. They're usually botanicals that we know will work systemically, and we have them rotate those botanicals four days each. We don't have them take the, the, the medicine every day ongoing. And this makes a huge difference uh, in the treatment because candida is very drug resistant, which is something that a lot of people don't understand. If candida is exposed to a medication for 21 days in a row, it then begins to become drug resistant to that medication. If you rotate the medicines that you're taking every four days or every seven days, you eliminate that possibility. I can't tell you how many patients we've had come to us who, who have said something like, well, I went to the doctor, he said I had candida, he gave me niastatin, or he gave me caprylic acid, or he gave me whatever it was, and I was taking it, I was getting better, and then about three months or so after I was taking this, all my symptoms started to come back. So I doubled the dose. I, you know, I, I took more and more of it, and it didn't make any difference. We hear this story all the time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So this is your classic case of someone whose candida has become drug resistant to the medicine that they were taking. Yeah. And, you know, since I learned from you when you've taught me a lot of this, because I did your protocol almost 20 years ago now, it's kind of hard to believe. Um, you know, I remember a lot of this and I experienced the same thing. I have people come to me from other practitioners saying the same, you know, and they've been on oregano or on, you know, grapefruit seed extract for a month or two straight. And, you know, sometimes they take it even for other reasons, you know, but then it just makes their candida more resistant. So it's such a good point. So then when the person completes the first phase, 
at that point, they've probably eliminated about 70% of their candida. And because we've used botanicals that absorb systemically, we've essentially given their body a good shotgun blast for it. But the true candida that's dangerous is the candida living in your intestinal tract, because that's the nest. So the next program they go on, which is phase two, is where we use particular antifungal substances, which have the ability to really destroy the candida deep in the mucus layers or the mucus lining of the colon and the small intestine. Uh, the person takes these products then until the urine test tells us that we've gotten the candida levels down to normal. And at that point, they go on the second part of phase two, which is where we introduce probiotics and prebiotics. Now, just off the bat, probiotic companies hate me. I am on the hate list of every probiotic company, because when I start speaking about candida in lectures and in my book or wherever, one of the first things a person learns is that I don't just indiscriminately throw everybody on, on probiotics and then pray that it works. That's, that's not going to work. Because as long as your intestinal tract is dirty and it's infected with harmful microbes, whether they're bacteria, candida, parasites, or whatever, those organisms are going to repel the probiotic and stop it from being able to attach itself or reattach to the intestinal lining. So as a quick way of thinking in terms of what the correct treatment is, it's always first remove the candida, then replace with the probiotic. Taking the probiotic in the beginning stages of the treatment usually doesn't do people uh, very much good. I learned this the hard way, but I also confirmed this many years ago when I was working with uh, the then Great Smokies labs. Now they're called Genova labs, but my office in the early 90s was actually a satellite test uh, office for Great Smokies labs, and we would um, perform stool tests on the patients every week back in those days. Um, the, the good people that worked there that I was researching with, Marty Lee and Steve Barry, were able to give our patients a tremendous discounts on the stool test so that we can understand better how all these different things work. So they were able to perform the test every week. And we would see that we were giving when we're giving the people probiotics, nothing was happening. The probiotics were not showing up in their test they still were showing to be very low on the probiotics. But once we eliminated the candida, whether it showed on the stool test or not, that's an important point I just want to reemphasize. Once they went through antifungal treatment and then we gave them the probiotics, now we were starting to see the probiotics reappearing in their stool. And that's why we do it in this fashion. Yeah, no, I love what you're saying. That's so important. And I think the other reason too is that sometimes, you know, candida is not the only organism at the party. You know, there could be SIBO, like you were saying, there could be parasites, there could be other stuff too. And in those cases, you know, giving probiotics can actually cause people to feel worse if you do that before you clean out all of these things. So especially people with leaky gut, which I'm sure you've seen, but I noticed it many years ago. And I, how, how unfortunately I noticed it, um, primarily in children. A lot of the children with autism that were being brought to me who had leaky gut, when we gave them probiotics, they had violent reactions. And I, I then found that to also be true in adults, that adults or anyone with leaky gut syndrome usually doesn't uh, tolerate probiotics well. So you're doing phase one with them, then you're going to first part of phase two, where you're kind of getting to those deeper layers of the candida. And what are some of the products, by the way, that you use for phase two? I know you said antifungals for phase one. What are some specific things for phase two that you like? Generically, the, the only items that actually work to accomplish this 
are caprylic acid and undiselenic acid because they're and also uh, lauracine, which is uh, the monolaurin. Those are the three fatty acids that work in this manner to eliminate the intestinal candida. Um, paramycocidin, which is also called citricidal, also can work. And a product out there called Tanelbit, which has been around for many years, which is a, a zinc tannate substance, also can work in the intestinal tract. So those are the, the five products that will work to eliminate the deep-rooted candida. But it's always the fatty acids that work the best because the fatty acids are able to enter the cell and go deeply into the tissues. Yeah, I remember taking that with you. I actually still remember your voice when you were telling me, think of it as like the oils going into like a leather and filling in all of those like crevices. Like I still remember you saying that yeah, that long true. ago, but uh, yeah. That's a blast. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So then you do probiotics, which is the second um, part of phase two. And with probiotics, do you like to test people to see which probiotics they need? Or do you find that at that point, once the infection is eliminated, that you know more just broad spectrum probiotics are good? Well, what I have, I found a few things on that light. First is that when you use probiotics, you've got to make sure that they're human strain or sticky strain. And I will plug one company here now because they've done a great job of doing this, which is Metagenics. All Metagenics probiotics are human strain or sticky strain. And I don't care how many billions of live bacteria cultures that you're going to talk about that are in the product, that doesn't really make a difference. What makes a difference is whether or not it's sticky strain or human strain. So that's the first thing is you always have to make sure your probiotic is a sticky or human strain product. The next thing is using the prebiotics because very often people concentrate on probiotics, but they don't use the prebiotics in a manner that's going to create the proper environment for those probiotics to grow. And now this is where what you're doing now starts to become similar to gardening or managing your lawn in, in that manner. Where the probiotics you can think of as being the seeds that you're putting in, but then you need the prebiotics there to constantly feed them. You have to water them, you have to feed them, and you have to manage them so that they grow. And the key probiotics are fiber, because fiber is what your probiotics actually feed off of to produce short-chain fatty acids, which then help further stabilize your intestinal tract. And substances like FOS, fructooligosaccharide, which is a sugar that uh, feeds the probiotic. You just have to be careful with the FOS that you don't have Klebsiella or any similar bacteria, because FOS can also feed Klebsiella, which is a, Klebsiella is a very nasty bacteria. And this is, again, why, going back for a step, and just take, take a step back, this is, again, why the approach of remove and replace is going to make the most sense. Because if you take somebody who's treating themselves and what they do is they read about all this and they say, oh, wow, this FOS stuff can feed my friendly bacteria. It's going to come back and then my candida won't be there. If this person happens to have Klebsiella and they start taking FOS, they're going to get really some pretty bad reactions from that as that bacteria starts running rampant through their intestines. Yeah. Or if they have SIBO or other overgrowth, I mean, FOS could just be like it's a fertilizer for anything. And if there's bad stuff in there, yeah, you'll feel a lot worse. And that makes sense why we obviously remove first, like you said, before replace. Yes. Always remove, then replace. Then the other situation which deserves honorable mention is the people with intestinal permeability. Let me, let me try not to rant on this because I easily can. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people 
in the in 30 years that I've been doing this as a as a specialist come into my office. I know the I know them the moment they come in, I know exactly what's gonna happen. They have this look. They come in, they sit down, they put, slam their hands down, and they look at me and say, Doctor, I want to tell you, I have been treating my leaky gut for over 15 years. I've taken every substance that's that's known to treat leaky gut, and I'm not one bit better. I have the worst case of leaky gut that you're ever going to see in your life. <laughs> I listen to them. I let them tell me their story. And then there's the key question that has to be asked. Well, sir, have you ever tested yourself for leaky gut? Well, I don't have to do that. I don't need to test. I know I have every symptom of leaky I know I have leaky gut. I don't need any test. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, humor me here. I'm going to have you do a test for leaky gut. Let's just see. Let's see how bad it is. This way we can tell everybody how, how bad your, your case is. Sure enough, they test for it. It comes back negative. They don't have it. Now, when you think you have a condition and you're treating yourself for this condition for 10 years and then you find that you don't have it, it could be a bit of a shock. Uh, but because you've wasted all that time and all that money and whatnot, treating and the moral of the story is that there are many other conditions that can mimic having leaky gut. Now, in this in this person, uh, whose name real real person, his name happened to be Stanley, and uh, in Stanley's case, we found that his problem was he was mercury toxic. He he had bad candida. He and he had mercury. Uh, that was causing all type of wild autoimmune systems, but he didn't have leaky gut. So the moral of the story is you always want to make sure you test yourself before you assume you have any condition. But as far as leaky gut goes, it's important that if you tr that when you treat leaky gut, you treat leaky gut before you go on a heavy probiotic program. Because people with leaky gut can react very badly to the probiotics, and uh, the probiotics aren't going to respond correctly if you have leaky gut. Right. What are some of your favorite tests for leaky gut? There's so many new ones these days. I've, we've been using the breath test that uh, Metasol Labs does for leaky gut only because it's it's most convenient for most of our patients, and it's been accurate. The the Zolin test that that people can do ultimately is probably the most accurate. I think the um, the mannitol lactulose recovery test, which was the original test that was done, mm -hmm. I think there's still some validity there. But um, when when I look at the people who tested negative for leaky gut on that test, who then tested positive with the breath test, that essentially ruled that uh, ruled out using that test anymore for me. But my practice is a bit unique in that 80 or to 90 percent of all the patients we have are um, out of the area. We don't, um, even though we're located here in New York City, we don't have the majority of our patients living in New York City. The majority of our patients are scattered all over the country and all over the world. So when we have a test, we have to make sure it's something that everybody could do easily. And that's where the breath test comes in. For our patients, it just happens to be the most convenient. But please test. That moral of the story is do do a test for leaky gut. Whatever the test is, at least have them do a test because when they don't do a test, then they're like these these people on Facebook and in all these internet groups that are that are there. They're all diagnosing each other based on symptoms. It's um, and there is there is something to be said for that. There is some good that these online groups 
can do in terms of people interacting, but there's also harm because they, they fall into the, these lazy habits of then doing everything without a test or without having someone with professional experience. Right, exactly. And I think the other part of that is that, you know, if you think that you have something you're not sure, and then you're around a lot of other people who have that, then it could kind of be this downward spiral because you hear that, well, this is really hard to treat. And you see all these other people that have issues. And then you're like, well, if they can't treat it, that means that maybe I can't. And then you just kind of have this like negative mindset about it, which is just never helpful. I have to agree. That's unfortunate, but you hit it on the head. So, and if someone does have leaky gut, um, what are some of your favorite ways to support that? There are many protocols nowadays. Uh, luckily for us, things have advanced to where virtually every company has a protocol for leaky gut. It's pretty predictable in, in most cases, the ingredients they're going to have in their products. The one thing that I would, would say, though, is that, that you typically don't find. There are two products that are made by um, – I believe it's allergy research group or cardiovascular research. Either they're 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 uh, corporately somehow linked, so I'm not sure which it is. But it's uh, the substances are are called mucin uh, products. The trade name is Colexin or Silex. Those are the two brand names. But what they actually are are mucins. Now mucins are substances that are produced in the intestinal tract of all mammals. And mucins are like your first layer of defense in your intestinal tract from developing leaky gut or any type of uh, intestinal abnormality, particularly in people with uh, chronic ulcers, gastric and duodenal, they lose that mucin layer. And that's what makes their situation so raw and acute and painful. So one of the things that we always do when we're dealing with a leaky gut patient is the first thing we do before we give them anything else is we give them the mucin substances to take for a week or two before we give them any of the other typical protocols. And we find that um, there's a catch-22 that happens with pa patients with leaky gut is they react to things. They, they react to all types of things, good and bad. And very often when you have a leaky gut patient and you give them a leaky gut protocol, they start reacting badly to the leaky gut protocol. They're, they're, they're having an allergic reaction to it. So if you give them the mucin supplement first, it usually cuts back dramatically on their bad reactions to the leaky gut protocol. Now, speaking of people having reactions or maybe not seeing as an, an improvement maybe as quickly as others, let's talk a little bit about biofilms. Um, if someone has a biofilm, why does that make it harder to get to the candida? Tell us more about that. Well, interestingly enough, I, I'm so concerned about biofilm that uh, recently when we updated my book, The Candida Chronicles, for the 2019 edition, the key thing that we put in the book is a whole paragraph – I'm sorry, a whole chapter on biofilm and mycobacteria. And essentially, what they with these things are mycobacteria or bacteria which form biofilm. They tend to, um, let's say uh, – integrate with other types of um, organisms and they form a complex and in this complex that they form the biofilm is then produced and the biofilm acts like a protective covering to these bad microbes and anyone who's had candida for a long time who's been fighting battling with it and their progress has been a, a complete roller coaster most likely is someone who has a bad case of mycobacterium biofilm. The biofilm essentially protects the candida 
from the medicines that you take to try to kill it. So it's essential that the person be on a biofilm remedy. Now, the, there are different biofilm remedies. Um, it's, that would be a, a bit too, too much of a, a discussion for us to have here today. Um, but from my experience, every biofilm remedy that I've tried does work to some degree, some better than others, but they do work. When you put a person on a biofilm remedy, one of the things that you're going to see is they're going to start passing in their stool globby, mucousy kind of stuff, which actually is the biofilm. And when they, when they take that product to expose enough of the biofilm, then the medicines that they're taking to remove should be able to eliminate the microorganisms that are involved. Or, um, there's a, a silver uh, um, called Argentine 23, which is particularly effective, I have found, at killing the, the mycobacteria that form the biofilm. So if we get a person who we're treating for candida and we suspect they have biofilm, we put them on the biofilm protocol because there's unfortunately no, no uh, commercial test right now to check for people having biofilm. You have to go by their symptoms. And as I said before, the key symptoms would be having this condition chronically for a long time and having it be a roller coaster. So we put them on the biofilm product and, and when they start excreting this this gobby substance, then we put them on the Argentine 23 to kill that bacteria. And then they usually do fine. They just sail through the rest of the treatment. And do you keep them on the biofilm protocol while they're doing the antifungal protocol or do you stop that? Uh, usually we keep them on it just to, to make sure that we've got it all. Mm -hmm. We also work with a, a laboratory called Wei Laboratories. It's, they make very specific and very potent Chinese medicines. And um, we've been able to assemble an entire protocol of biofilm removers for different areas of the body. Like if there's biofilm in the lungs and the liver and the intestines or wherever, we have different protocols that pinpoint where that uh, biofilm is and then it eliminates them. That's great. So how long does a typical candida eradication take? And obviously, you know, everyone is different, but, you know, if someone has, let's say, a moderate case of candida from start to finish, what do you normally see? We're, we normally expect nine months, and um, theoretically, it could be done in six months. But the problem is life. Mm -hmm. Life intervenes on the person. They go on vacation. They might lo lose their supplements or leave them someplace. You know, they they could um, cheat on the diet because there's the wedding that they've been looking forward to going for like two years. Um, they get into an accident. They have to take antibiotics. There's all, they have dental work, which then flares up. Something can happen. So we, we build in an extra three months on a person's candida treatment because of that. And we're usually 90% right. That it's going to take about, about nine months right. to go through everything. That, that, that's if they don't have any other complications, which the main one being is they have diabetes. Because if, you, if it's a diabetic, you've also have, you also have to use various nutritional uh, – procedures, protocols, whatever, to try to get their blood sugar under control if the doctor doesn't have it under control because you'll, you'll never cure the diabetic of candida without uh, getting his blood sugar in, uh, in better shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. And then the other thing that I often see, which I know you probably see as well, is heavy metals. And there's this correlation between candida and heavy metals, and they sort of, I guess, feed each other. So if you suspect someone has heavy metals or maybe test and see that they have it, how do you address it in that case? Well, the first thing we dispel is the theory that was produced by a colleague of mine in the mid-90s, which has still survived, 
is that candida is a good thing that occurs in someone with heavy metals, particularly mercury, and that the body produces candida as a way of protecting itself from the mercury. And this is absolute nonsense. Um, it, this is a theory that got around. It's still around. It's still around. But it can be explained very easily. What happens is when the mucous membranes are exposed to candida, fecal IgA and all the other immunoglobulins dramatically drop. So mercury sub deeply suppresses the person's immune response in their intestinal tract. This is what allows candida to grow. Then what happens at this point, the candida starts to absorb the mercury. And I, I don't really have a clear answer yet from anyone on why it does, but candida itself pulls in mercury almost like it was a nutrient and holds on to it. So when you start to kill the candida in one of these patients and the candida starts to decompose, it starts to release a lot of this mercury that it's been holding on to. And then the person goes through like severe reactions of having this mercury now coming out of their system. So when you're treating people like this, the first rule is you want to try to get rid of as much of their candida and get their flora as close to normal as possible before you start touching the mercury. When you're, when you're eliminating the mercury, there are basically three different types of substances you want to be giving them. You want to be giving them some type of a chelator for the mercury. Whatever that is, it's, that's the practitioner's choice on what he wants to use as a chelator. But you need to use some type of binder that's going to bind the mercury and the tissues systemically and pull it out. You need to give them nutrients which are directly antagonistic to the mercury. As an example, selenium, zinc, vitamin C are some of the key nutrients which naturally antagonize mercury in the human body and stop it from being able to store. And then you want to give them something which will bind the mercury in the intestinal tract to prevent reabsorption. So if you have these three groups of substances in play, usually you'll be able to handle the person's mercury with the least amount of drama and theatrics because when detoxing people of toxic metals can be really rough. Yes. They can produce all kinds of wild symptoms. And when you have these three sets of uh, substances in play, you're going to get probably the, the, the smoothest elimination of the mercury without it backing up and causing the person tremendous grief. Yeah. Yeah. So important. Actually, I was one of those cases. I had a lot of mercury, a lot of copper and a lot of candida. And I think when I tried to address all of it, it just backfired in my body. It was like, whoa, what is happening? And so, you know, we did all of the GI stuff first. Then I went and did some of the binding and the mercury stuff and then went back to clean up the GI again because some of the mercury removal flared some of it up. Um, which, is, which happens in a lot of people. And you also have the advantage of, uh, of now having become an expert in the interpretation of trace mineral testing. So you have a better appreciation of this than probably most health practitioners out there that don't have your knowledge on interpreting tissue mineral analysis. Yeah, because it's all about, and that's something you've helped me so much and taught me so much of, so thank you for that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's all about how the minerals work together. It's not what's high or what's low, but it's how they all interact and how they're related. This is true. 
Yeah. So, and my last question for you is about the candida diet, because this is something that people ask me all the time. And, you know, there's so many diets out there and there's some very, very strict candida diets. And unfortunately, people sometimes think that if they just follow the candida diet, they can get rid of their candida, which is really not true. I think we can both agree with that. But while they are you know, doing all of the antifungal protocols, how strict do they need to be on the diet? And is there any leeway there? We've had people that were successful at getting rid of their candida who were consuming up to 120 grams of carbs a day, but very complex, not, no sugars, nothing, no maltose, things like this. Generally speaking, we work with three different candida diets. One candida diet is a maximum of about 40 grams of carbs the other is 60 to 80, and the other is around 100. And we give those diets depending on how bad their candida is. Obviously, the worse the candida is, the lower the uh, amount of carbs per day would be. But we also can take into consideration their blood type. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but I had studied many years ago when I was in school with uh, Dr. Diadamo Sr., not Peter Diadamo, who's written all the books about the blood type, who's made, made it popular, but his father, who did the original research. And I learned a lot about the value of the, the blood type diet. Now, I'm the first one who's going to say that it's not the gospel, but on the other hand, there's an awful lot of truth there that can be very helpful. So if you, enter, if you take into consideration the person's blood type in, with the candida diet, um, I think that's a, probably the best you're going to get. I, I don't know of any other of any other way to do it because when you go online and you start looking at candida diets that are there, all of these diets that you find online have been developed by a person who had candida, and they they're basically telling you what diet worked for them. That, that's great if I want to take that person and now genetically clone him and have a whole practice that are based on his genetic clones, but that's just, that's not going to happen. So I, I think that it's, uh, it can be problematic, people looking at those diets. I think you, you, the person needs to really pay attention to what foods they tend to react to because everyone is going to have their own unique set of allergies that comes to you who has candida. So looking at it from that viewpoint too also can help shape the diet that the person needs to do. To some, to some degree, no one knows better than the person themselves what they need to do with the diet because of their own experience. Yeah. And it's so important just to listen to your body. I say that to people all the time, but I'm really happy to hear that, you know, you say that a little bit of carbs is okay because I think so often people come in saying, all right, I have candida or I think I have candida and I know I have to get rid of it, but I just don't know if I can eat, you know, zero carbs. I don't think I can, you know, sustain with that, um, which is true. So I'm really glad to know that you're seeing it and I'm seeing it in the practice as well, that people can have some carbs and still be able to successfully get rid of it with the proper protocols and herbs. Yeah, I, I don't know where that started. You know, that's their, their in this business. There's all kinds of rumors that that come about. Yeah, um, well, you know what it is? I think that it's when people were using the diets without using any antifungals or any other antimicrobials. So I think maybe it started when people were using the diet alone to try to starve out the candida, which really isn't. I, I think, in my opinion, not very possible. At least, you know, not you know, maybe until you finish the diet, but as soon as you put one piece of, you know, anything that has any kind of sugar in it, it'll just come right back. Well, that see, this goes along with, with the study I did in the early 90s where we took um, 
five people who had candida. We had uh, documented they had candida with their stool tests, and we put them on a fast. And they they fasted on water for about two weeks. We watched their blood chemistries, watched everything. Their candida symptoms went into remission. And then we had them very gradually come off the fast and start um, in integrating some complex carbs in their diet. And the moment those carbs got into the body, boom, the candida was right back there. And this is the proof that the candida grows literally like a, a plant or a weed. It has roots that tap into your tiny blood vessels to take glucose out of your bloodstream to keep itself alive. So it's impossible to get rid of candida in that manner, even if you're doing a total fast. So why should we think that doing a, a zero-carbohydrate diet is going to get rid of it if, if a water fast won't? Exactly. Exactly. I definitely still remember you telling me candida will feed on your own blood sugar. Well, Dr. Biamonte, this has been so helpful. I am so excited to have you on and um, thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge with everyone. And I still can't believe that it's been almost 20 years since you and I met. And, you know, I was the person who drank beer. Like I used to drink bud and ate bread and cookies. I think I ate Twinkies back then. <laughs> and then I wondered why I had candida. <laughs> so I've come a long way and you have just been someone who has been just such an important, important person in my life. And I feel like without you, I wouldn't be where I am today, you know, not just in my career, but in my health overall. So thank you for all of that. Well, it's my pleasure to have brought you to the point where now you're helping others. And I just can't, I just can't say enough, but as we were saying this before, before we were on the air, I'm just so proud of you and everything you've done. So you just keep up the good work. As we just heard, Candida overgrowth can affect so many different areas of the body, and it goes way deeper than just yeast infections and even digestive issues. The good news is that when we know it's there, there's lots of things we can do to really get it once and for all. I'll tell you more about what we did for Kenzie in just a second, but first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Dr. Michael Biamonte, please visit my website, healthmysterysolve.com, and go to episode number 33. There you will see all the detailed show notes so you can reference everything that he and I discussed. Also, I just wanted to do a quick listener shout out to XXLNY, who gave us a five-star review on iTunes. She says, Ina's podcasts are a must-listen if you have questions about your body or functional medicine. She's insightful and simplifies complex issues in easy-to-digest episodes. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that review and really appreciate you taking a few minutes to write it. Now, these reviews really help in having the podcast be shown to more people. So if you guys like the show and can write a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And as for Kenzie, Candida is something I suspected, and so we ran an organic acid test, and her D-arabinitol marker was through the roof, showing Candida was in fact present, so we had our work cut out for us. First, we started with diet. Because candida feeds on sugars, we worked on lowering Kenzie's processed sugar consumption and changed her white processed carbs that she was eating to more whole grain ones. Now, I'm of the belief that we don't have to take out every ounce of carbs and sugar in order to eradicate candida if we use the right protocol with the right antifungals. So she didn't have to stop all carbs and all fruit and only just eat meat. While this may help, 
I just don't find it necessary to have to put someone through something like this. Kenzie did accentuate good lean proteins and healthy fats, but she was able to have two starches and two fruits a day with no issues. After a few weeks of the diet change, I put her on a pancreatic enzyme called Digestzyme and some betaine HCL to help support her stomach acid and digestion, as well as a supplement called Biofilm Defense, which helps to break up biofilms. So biofilms are like the shields that candida and other microbes can form around themselves to help protect themselves from our immune system. And when they're present, it's harder to eradicate the bugs. So when someone has candida or dysbiosis for a long time, it's very likely the biofilms have formed and we want to go after those first. We use this for a month and then added in antifungal nutrients. I gave her citramnesia, followed by FC Cytal, and then followed by Microgon. These are synergistic formulas with herbs that have antifungal, but also antibacterial properties. This took about seven weeks, and then after that, we used something called SF722, which is an oil-based antifungal formula that gets a bit deeper to help eradicate the candida that has made its way deeper into the intestines. We used five gel caps twice a day for 60 days. At first, Kenzie was not feeling great and was definitely experiencing what we call a detox reaction. Her gas got a little worse, and she also felt like the brain fog was a tad worse as well. So what we did is we added in some charcoal, which worked as a binder to help absorb some of the toxins that the yeast was releasing as it was being killed off. After that, Kenzie started to balance out. And by the time we started the SF722, her memory was better. Her digestion was also better. When we finished the SF722, she noticed the biggest difference because that was the last part of the cleanse and her brain fog completely lifted, her energy improved, and she didn't have any gas and her stomach was flat. She finished out the protocol with GI Revive, which helps to heal the gut, which has glutamine and other mucilaginous herbs. Kenzie was feeling so much better. She was all done with the protocol, but she wanted to make sure that this never happens again. So while she was able to go back to some of the other foods she enjoyed, she wanted to continue eating well and watched her sugars and wine as those can feed candida. She did such a great job of really making this a lifestyle more so than just a fad diet. If Kenzie sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to the show because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to solving your health issues, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mysteries Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.